Thank you, Daniel and Leslie. Appreciate that song very, very much. What a, a great gospel-centered song about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads. So glad you're here. And uh, I have such a affinity for the men of God in our church. One of my, my heart's desires as a pastor is to pour into the men uh, collectively and also individually on a personal basis. I love the phrase, man of God. That's not just for a pastor. Um, I want to help you and equip you to be uh, men of God. I'm so grateful for the fathers in our church and and for the men. And so uh, at the end of the service, we have a gift uh, that we want to give to you. Uh, It involves food, and so we're not going to give it to you now, or we'll have a picnic during the service. And I don't know that I really want to do that. I know that most of you do, but I really don't want to do that right now. But I want you to turn to the book of Philippians this morning, if you would. And Philippians chapter 2, if you would. And we will jump right into this. And if you will be patient just a moment. While I pull this together, I'm so glad that I organized my notes. Years ago... I started numbering my notes, and there's a reason why, and I see that reason right now. I think I got that good. I worked with a pastor uh, in Dayton, Tennessee, that was my wife and I's pastor. In fact, he passed away in February um, from COVID. His name was Lou. I love Lou very much, and he told me a story about a, a pastor's true story. That was preaching, and he had a, a small notes. I typed mine, so mine are on eight and a half by eleven. But he he hand wrote his, and he was a very uh, vigorous preacher, and uh, was using these gestures, and and he created you know uh, a gesture, and when he did, it, it knocked his notes down in the floor behind the place where they had the Lord's Supper. He said. I tell you what, I didn't need them notes. You know, just a little bit arrogant to the congregation. And my friend Lou said, oh, but he did, he did. <laughs> and Lou and I used to laugh about that. And I, I know that I do, I do. So I sit there and, and I always look at them before I get up. And I thought, oh, these are out of order. And so I'm putting them in order as I speak for your benefit. There they go. Thank you for your patience. I love Father's Day. And I love Father's Day not because uh, I'm a father, but because I love my own dad. My dad passed away. It will be 13 years next month. And I love my daddy. He was the most profound influence in my life of anyone that I've ever met. A great, great man. I think about him every day of my life. I mean, I think about him. Uh, Something he taught me, something that he said, uh, memories. Of course, I grew up in Huntsville. And for most of my life, I've lived here. We lived in Virginia for a while, and I lived in Tennessee where I went to school. But um, I see places. Uh, sometimes I'll go into one of the post office where Dad had his post office box, and uh, he worked with his hands. And sometimes he had grease on his hands. And I have a picture in my, uh, in my phone that I took, and around his post box, office box, Jeff, around where you... You work the combination, there's still the grease around that thing. Because he had that thing for decades, and, and it's still there. It's just a precious reminder of my dad. But I also love Father's Day, not just because of my, my own relationship with my dad, but because of a conviction that I have about the importance of fathers and the importance of a father to, to his family. And there's a lot that's being said today about dads where they're trying to tamp down the father, not understanding the importance of the father. I coached baseball for over 20 years, and I saw what happens to, to homes where there's not a father or there's an absent father, but many times where there's no father, and it's heartbreaking. And, uh, and to see these young men, I remember... One young man um, who robbed a store and, and uh, went into criminal activity and loved that young man, loved his mom, tried to help him. 
It's a little boy. It's a little boy. Didn't have a daddy in the home. I love Father's Day because of the importance to the family. I love it because of the importance to the church. Uh, we need strong men in the church. First Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 2 teaches that. Women are so important to a church. But the Bible says that, that men are, are to be the leaders in the church. Uh, that's, that's so clear in the Word of God. And I love Father's Day because it's a reminder to us, not just of the fathers, but of the men of the importance of men in a church. I want you to listen to me carefully and, and don't misunderstand my heart, but masculinity is made fun of today. And uh, different things are said about it that uh, they, they want men to almost be effeminate. And, and, and God made a man to be masculine. He made a man to be that way. And he made a woman to be feminine. And this is not the course of the message this morning, but our nation is is all topsy-turvy with things. And and I fear for our young people as they grow up hearing uh, and being educated with various things. I love Father's Day for so many reasons because the importance of men of God, of godly men. And so as we, we pause to honor our dads, and I want to talk about this a little bit in the message today. But I want to angle as we complete a message, really one verse we spent a long time in today. But some of you, maybe this is the first Father's Day you've had without your dad or in recent times. And there's still a tenderness in your heart. You miss your dad. And that's an aspect of Father's Day that if you have your father, you don't think much about. And that's okay. Uh, You shouldn't. But one day that, that... that tenderness will be there. But then there are some that may be here, or maybe some that are watching on the Internet, that, that there is another type of ache where there's a wound. Uh, sometimes psychologists will call it a, a father wound because a father has a very significant influence. And, uh, and there is a, there's an anger, there's a bitterness Toward a, a child towards the father, even adult children towards their dad. I, I've met adult men and women that are angry towards their father, and the father is dead. He's been dead for a long time, and they're still angry towards their father. On the other hand, you may be a father here today, and, and you have children that are alienated from you for whatever reasons. And so you come on, on this Father's Day and, and you want to celebrate, and you do. But you don't want to just be a biological father. You want that connection you had with your children when days were better. And so I, I pose a couple of questions as we start this morning. How does an adult child go about mending a relationship with their father? Is that possible? Well, it is. And if they're gone, how do you go about mending your heart? And how does a father reach out to his adult children and establish a stronger relationship and and reduce conflict? Because sometimes there's personalities, there's things that have happened. Well, you can reduce those conflicts. They can be reduced. You don't have to have a fight every time. Every issue is not a hill upon which to die. And as we have looked here in the Word of God... And the Word of God, listen, the Word of God is not just theory. It's not just things to learn. It's to be applied. And we've been talking about unity. And there's, there's four, there's really five uh, attitudes. There's five qualities here, but I put, kind of put them in four groupings. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, that are key to maintaining unity. Because you do not create unity. God creates unity. But He gives us a responsibility to maintain it. Now, before, before I get into this, let me just mention this sentence. Some of us, I'll put myself in there, and let me be a little more bold. Some of you have, have a knack for creating unnecessary conflict. And you say, and I don't know why. I just constantly in conflict my wife, my kids, and other people. 
There's an old saying that if Sam has a problem with Bill and Sam has a problem with Sarah and Sam has a problem with Ron, Sam is the problem. Because you, you keep having problems wherever you go. Well, it's probably because you lack these qualities in first, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's look at them. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. We'll read the text and come back and read these qualities. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, notice these unity terms, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. You can see the theme here. And then he applies it even more clearly here. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That means self-glory that's empty. The idea of seeking your own self-esteem to your own end. But rather in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And one of my life verses, Philippians 2.4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And there's so much here, we're going to limit ourselves to verse 1 and, and just really one idea this morning. Now these four qualities, and I'm just going to mention the first three because I want to tie a knot on all of this this morning. Some of you weren't here for some of this or you've forgotten it. The first quality to help you mend this is, is consolation. And the word consolation in verse 1 means to soothe a person's pain with your presence and words. Uh, that just means be aware when somebody's hurting and then show up and speak up. But you speak soothing words. You don't speak correcting words. And how many times have I told you this? A hundred, a thousand, ten thousand? You don't speak comparative words. Oh, I know how you feel. Oh, I've gone through that before. They don't want to know your history. They're hurting. They're They're broken. You're there to console. I'm so sorry. I know you're hurting right now. And sometimes you don't speak up. You just show up. You console. Secondly, the Bible talks about the comfort of love. And uh, the idea of comfort. Love is what motivates the comfort. The word comfort there means to bring comfort and support that is motivated by love. Comfort is sharing your strength. I comfort you when I'm there to support. I share my strength. I have something to bring to the table to carry your burden, to support you. And my love demands that I do it. And that's why the Word of God here says the comfort of love. And if you'll notice in the Bible there, it says this consolation is in Christ. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. He comforts us because he loves us. He shows up. He speaks to us in our pain and our suffering. And he offers us his strength. This is, this is who Christ is. And the third quality, if you want to mend these fences and you want to reduce conflict and you want to get things back to where you can have a conversation and, and really have, have joy in the relationship is fellowship. The Bible says fellowship in the spirit. And you can't, have, you can't have fellowship with people until you have fellowship with God. Now, fellowship, and the way I define it is this. Fellowship is a relationship that's centered in Christ and God's word, characterized by authenticity, transparency, and trust. I know that's a lot to say. But it's not just spending time. And spending time is important, but you spend time doing these things. And if there's not trust, if there's not authenticity, if there's not transparency, and you can't have those things without the first two. Spending time in the Word of God. You see, the the highest intimacy possible is not with another human being, it's with Christ. And when when I'm related to Christ properly... It removes these, this junk out of my life so I'm able to be transparent with other people. And you're able to trust me. And I'm able to trust you because of the way that I live. And we're able to share some things about Christ. 
And then all of a sudden, they say, hey, he has changed. She has changed because there's fellowship in the spirit. But there's also because of the fellowship in the spirit. I have fellowship with people because I, I have changed. Now, I went through that hurriedly on purpose because I spent a whole lot of time on it in other messages. Now, here's what I want to finish with. And he says at the end of the verse there, if any bowels and mercies. Now, these qualities, I'm going to lump them under the same idea, but they also come from the Holy Spirit. He says the fellowship of the Spirit, these come from the Holy Spirit as well. And I'm going to call this empathy and mercy. Now, if you're looking in the Bible, and last week we talked about bowels, which is obviously we don't use this word. It's a physical word with our body. But he's not talking about the body. I think only two times in the Bible, I used 43 times, I believe. And only two times in the Bible, it's used of the physical body. It's, all used, it's always used metaphorically of, of the emotions, but, but not just anger, but of tenderness. And whenever in the Bible, and I gave you a lot of verses, he's talking about one's affections. It has to do with a person's affections. And here's how I illustrated it last week. We, on Valentine's Day, and sometimes it doesn't require Valentine's Day, we will say things like this. We will say, I love you with all of my heart. And if we're really gushy, we'll say, I love you from the bottom of my heart. And when we say that, or someone tells us that, we don't even blink. Because we have used it all of our lives. We've heard it all of our lives. But can you imagine never having heard that before in its context and thinking, what is he talking about? You know, they love me from, you know, this physical organ pumping blood. This, this guy, this woman, what, they're, they're so weird. What are they talking about? No, because it's a metaphorical use. That's what they mean here, because when you, when you feel something, you feel it here. You feel fear here, real fear. You feel it here. You feel anxiety here. It, literally, people get sick here. They get ulcers here. And sometimes people feel excitement and joy here. And so here's what he's saying, this, this whole idea of tenderness, of affection in the Word of God and other people and other cultures use this in the same way. So here's the idea. Affection and tenderness is reflected in the word bowels. Compassion is reflected in the word mercies in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now I want to define these words. I'm laying some foundation and I'm going to give some application to it. The word empathy means this. Now watch this. It means the ability, don't miss this, it means the ability to understand, to be aware of, to be sensitive to, to vicariously experience the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another person. Now I have these words underlined, to understand, to be aware of, to be sensitive, and vicariously experience. I think in Ezekiel 3.15, Ezekiel the prophet told The people, he said, I have sat where you sat. That's what he says to them. What he was saying is, I can identify with you. I know how you feel. Now, sometimes we say, oh, that's mushy. Well, you you better get some of that mush. Can I put it this way? You better have some of, of that empathy or what he expresses here, that affection or some of those bowels. That's what he means there. That tenderness, if you're going to relate to people well, if not, you're going to end up being a bully. Because everything's going to be on your terms. And I'll develop this a little bit more. But without empathy, everything runs through you. And as a boss, people will work for you for a little while and they will leave. Somebody said one time, people don't leave companies, they leave people. That's true. People don't leave companies, they leave bosses. And sometimes people don't leave families, they leave individuals. But they leave individuals and they leave bosses. But they leave people with that empathy. This is huge. It's in the Word of God when He says bowels. See, sometimes when I when I preach on a verse and I'll spend some time on it, why, why, why does He keep talking about that? Because you don't get it. 
And if you got this, it, w- it would transform your life. This is huge. And some of you that are disconnected dads and disconnected children, maybe not just a dad with a mom or a sibling, it's because of a lack of empathy. And you don't, maybe the other person was wrong in their response. But why did they respond that way? Have you stopped to think, have you put yourself in their place? Maybe if you did, you would, you would say, and, and here's the thing, one day you're going to, but it's going to be too late. And you're really going to feel bad. Let me give you the definition of, of compassion. Compassion is the feelings that arise when you're confronted with the suffering of another person. But it also has a component of the motivation to relieve that suffering. Now, empathy and compassion bleed over. Empathy is the identification. Compassion is the motivation to do something about the suffering. Okay, empathy is I'm sitting where they've sat, as I identify. Okay, in other words, before empathy precedes compassion. I think sometimes we talk about compassion, but we don't understand that you can't have compassion without empathy. But it does, empathy doesn't just stop with identification. I want to relieve that, that suffering. And these two qualities, bowels and mercies, empathy and compassion, affection and mercy, they both, it's in the Bible here. What is the context? Stay with me. What is the context of Philippians? It's about unity. Why did he put these, these concepts of consolation, of fellowship, of comfort, of love, and bowels and mercies, of affection, of mercy. Why did he put these things in here concerning unity? Because they apply. This is not just poetry. This is from the mind and the heart of God. And we disobey it to our own peril. And some of you are not related properly to your dads. And some of you have kids that are not related to you as, as adults because you, you lack these qualities. You, you, you lack empathy. And you lack mercy. You lack compassion. Now, the opposite of mercy is justice. You say, well, preacher, don't you believe in justice? Absolutely. God is a God of justice. But God is also merciful. He's both. He's a perfect blend of mercy and justice. And because we are fallen people, we struggle with that balance. And we will till we get to heaven. But our first impulse as people, not just dads, as people, is we want, we want justice. But now listen to me. When we want justice, it's not the justice of God. Usually we want fairness to our advantage. See, justice is not fairness. Fairness is equal treatment. And I don't have time to go down that road right now. God is just, but God is not fair. Say, so it's the same thing. No, it isn't. Everybody in this room does not have the same IQ. You did not have the same background. You did not have the same advantages or disadvantages. You do not have the same health. God is not fair, but he is just. He's always right. God is just, but he's merciful. And in our pain, he's merciful. Now, in in our vengeance, when we think we're being just sometimes, we we do damage. And God warns about angry fathers. In Proverbs 22, I didn't give you this scripture, Andrew. The Bible talks about the rod of anger in a father. The rod of anger, his his rod of anger shall, shall fail. Angry discipline doesn't work. And the Bible talks about how when a father is angry or a mother is angry, I'm going to talk about a dad, it's Father's Day. And I'm not beating up on the dads, I'm going to be an encouragement to you. But I want to help you too. I'm trying to reconnect some generations here. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, the Bible says, You fathers provoke not your children to wrath. Don't stir your kids up to anger. Don't create angry children. 
but bring them up and nurture. That's disciplining them, spanking them. And then he says, admonishing them, instructing them. Now, you cannot discipline and correct them. You cannot coach them in an environment of anger. Did you hear me? You cannot discipline your child in anger, and you cannot teach them in anger. They don't go together. And that's why an angry father is so destructive, an angry mother, an angry pastor, an angry anybody in authority. It doesn't work. You know, there's only one time in the Bible when Jesus attributed a character quality to himself. Now, other places in the Bible attribute a lot of character qualities But there's only one time in the Word of God when Jesus attributed a character quality to himself in Matthew 11 when he says, I am meek and lowly. He said, I'm meek. He's not weak. Uh, Meekness is is strong. It's it's power under control. And part, part of that is humility. Part of that is is what we're looking at this morning. It's it's being merciful when you don't want to. Paul and I were talking about uh, the message this morning. I was just kind of talking over a meal this week, really just out of my heart. And I said, you know, the prodigal son in Luke 15, in fact, Luke 15 is, we call it the prodigal son chapter. It's not about the prodigal son at all. It's about the father. It features a prodigal and the elder brother, but it's about the father. And stay with me. There's justice there because the father let him go. I remember when I was a youth pastor and I didn't have children. And I tried to be really careful about giving advice that I didn't know about. And I remember I was, when I was up in Virginia, I was advising uh, a family that their, their child was rebellious. And I was so careful when I said this, but I knew it was biblical, but I was careful because we didn't have kids. And it's easy to give advice when you're not, don't have any experience. So I was very careful. But I said, well, you know, I said the prodigal son came home, but he didn't come home till his parents let him go. They had to let him go. And when they let him go and he went to the far country, he never came to himself. Till he came to the end of himself and he tasted the dregs of sin. I'm not for that. But we miss that part sometimes. That's the justice part. But here's what I told Paul. I said, the prodigal came home because he knew the heart of his father. I want to ask you a question. Maybe you've never thought about this. Do you think the prodigal would have ever come home if he would have had an angry father? Well, I don't. I mean, it's just common sense. I think I'm going to go home and, and get yelled at by my dad. He'll pound on me verbally or physically. Yeah, that, that was a good life. And his dad wasn't a wimp. But that's what I do. I'll go home and, and get hollered at and screamed at. That's what I want. No, his dad was merciful. His dad had empathy. His dad was strong. My father was a just man. He, when my daddy said something, he meant it. But my dad had such a huge heart of mercy that if we violated that standard, there was so much mercy. And mercy has a rebounding effect to it. Now listen carefully. Now you don't understand this, but when people are shown mercy, we think they're going to take advantage of it. And they may. They may initially. But I'm going to tell you something. When you, when you show mercy... It will rebound back towards you. Let me show you a scripture here in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 17. The Bible says, A merciful man doeth good to his own soul. You see that? The merciful man doeth good to his It's good for him. But he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. He troubleth his own flesh. But a merciful man, it's good for him because, because it's going to come back to him. Now, I'm not showing mercy because that's not mercy if I just do it. because I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do because it's the heart of God manifest in me through the Spirit of God. But it will come back to me. 
But the cruel man, notice how he describes a merciless man, a cruel man, troubles his own flesh, his own household, his own business, his own church. I read years ago, and I probably quoted this a few times from the pulpit, but when I read this, I thought, boy, isn't that the truth? It kind of fits in here. The guy wrote this. He said, remember to be kind to your paper boy. You may stand in his court one day. True, isn't it? Yeah. Be kind to people. Be merciful to people. He said, nobody's going to take advantage of me. You, you might be glad one day you were merciful. See? As powerful as empathy and mercy are, our first response is to seek vengeance. Isn't it? We want to give them peace of our mind. We, we want them to understand us. We want them to hurt as bad as they've hurt us. And when our father has hurt us, when our mom has hurt us, when our kids have hurt us, we cannot hear what they are saying because we are, we are so hurt. But the supernatural response, not the natural response, is to be compassionate, to be merciful, and to extend these qualities here in Philippians 2, 1, consolation and comfort and fellowship if they will have it. And then bowels or empathy and mercy. I'm going to show you a verse that I love. I love so much. It shows you the heart of God in Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. Look at it, Micah seven eighteen. It's phrased in the form of a question. Who is a God like unto thee? And this God that pardons iniquity. He passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever. Now look at this line. This God delights. Present tense. He delighteth in mercy. Have you ever seen that verse? I love this verse. I, you know, people that are unhealthy, they don't know who God is. And if you don't know the Word of God, you don't know who God is. And this is tucked away in the Old Testament. God delights in mercy. The word delight there means to incline toward, to bend over toward. It means God favors mercy. He takes pleasure in mercy. This is a godly response. Whenever, whenever you take pleasure in mercy, this is a supernatural response. This is a godly response. So here's the, here's the idea of the message. And I want to give you uh, some more application here from, from the Scriptures. If you want to make... Excuse me, if you want to maintain unity and reduce conflict, and, and we all want to, you must have a spirit of empathy, compassion, and mercy. You can't just reduce parenting when the kids are young and they're teenagers, and when you have the transition when the kids older are older too, to a formula or rules. And when they're younger, they're really young. It's different. But things have transition points. You, listen carefully. You, you cannot overlook the environment. If you have rules on your refrigerator and that's all you have for 18 years, you're going to have some trouble. I'm not against you having rules. But if you do not have an environment of empathy and compassion, you're going to have trouble. I'd rather for you to have the environment and not have the written rules. I didn't say you shouldn't have rules. But a handful of rules in a great environment is a whole lot better than a bunch of rules in no environment. I hope you heard my heart on that. I grew up in a good church, a Bible-believing church. But for whatever reasons, and I don't know all the reasons. I'm not a judge on this. I just don't know. We never heard any preaching on the home. As far as I can remember, it may have been my fault. I just can't remember any sermons growing up on the family. But we had a good family. And how shall I say this? I don't know that we, mom and dad, knew what they were doing. <laughs> because we had the Bible, but we weren't 
taught from it. And the Bible has a lot to say about the roles of the father and mother. But I'm going to tell you what they nailed. Is they nailed this, this matter of mercy and love and empathy. They nailed it. And the environment was healthy in our family. And, and when I look at, I told you we had a, the application of justice was there. There was discipline. But we didn't have a whole lot of rules. Maybe we could have had more rules. But we had a good environment because there was so much, there was a lot of love and there was a lot of mercy. Well, that question, I knew my mom and my dad loved me. My brother and sister would say the same. When it came time for me to have a best man in my wedding, I asked my dad. When it came time for my brother to get married, it came time to have a best man, he asked my dad. Now you say, well, did you do that because it's your duty? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I love my dad. I miss him. Nobody knows probably more than that my wife, my brother and sister. I miss my mom. I know you miss your mom, dad, those of you that miss them. I want you to have a Christian home. I want you to have a home that's based on the Word of God, that Christ-centered, that's peppered with the principles of God. But I also want you to have a home that is bathed in mercy and bathed in compassion. And I know that sometimes it, it gets so far gone and, and it's, the situation is so complex. You say, well, preacher, I, I don't think it's reachable. I, I don't think I can ever relate to this. And I know there's some things that are pretty bad, believe me. It can get pretty bad. But if you want to avoid, listen carefully to me, if you want to avoid destruction of relationships with your children and your parents or your brothers and your sisters, pursue empathy, pursue compassion, pursue mercy. You don't have to be right on every point. But you don't know. They, they, listen, be merciful. Be merciful. But he said, be merciful. Be merciful. If you want to reduce conflicts in your home, be compassionate. You don't have to speak up every time. If you want to rebuild and restore broken relationships, start with compassion. It works every time. Compassion kills criticism. Every time. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. I want you to see this. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, For God is my record. He said, God is on authority as I write this. How greatly I long after you. He says, I, I just, I yearn upon you. I think about you. I want to be with you. How greatly I, I want to see you. Look at this. In the, look at this. In the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, Based on what I just taught you, when you read that and the way it was used in Old English, you would say, what is that? The bowels of Jesus Christ. You know what it means now? It means in the affections and the tenderness of Christ. So when you read Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, when he's talking about bowels and mercies, where do we get this, this tenderness from? We get it from Jesus. See, some of you say, well, I, I can never get there. Well, if you're a Christian, you can. If you're dwelt by the Holy Spirit, He's called the Spirit of Christ. This is a supernatural response. This is a supernatural quality. It, it's not just a personality quirk. It's not that some people have it and some people don't. You can have this quality through the Holy Spirit of God. Now, let's look at some scriptures here as we come to a close. And I think this will help you. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot. He states this in the negative. In the negative. We do not have a high priest that cannot be touched. Look at this. That cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now, the word infirmities there means to be sick. 
It means to be sick in body. Those of you that are having illness or you've been sick. It's a physical infirmity, but it's also a spiritual infirmity. Infirmities of the soul. And he says, you do not have a high priest. He's talking about Jesus that cannot be touched. In other words, he can. You don't have a priest like this because you do have one. This He's stating it in the negative. Because you do have a priest because he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now watch this. When it says touched with the feeling, that's one Greek word, and I'm going to pronounce it for you, and you can guess which word we get from it. It's sympathio. Sympathio. We get the word in our English language, sympathy from that word. It's transliterated sympathy. The Lord Jesus not only, and it really means this, He's not just touched externally, He's touched internally. He not only has sympathy, He has empathy. Are you staying with me on this? The Lord feels for you, but He feels with you. When you stand by the graveside, when you're out in the waiting room with your loved one is having surgery, when you are about to have the surgery, whatever circumstance you go through, the Bible says that you do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of your infirmity. Whatever your infirmity is, he can have sympathy and empathy with that infirmity. Because he was in all points tempted like as we are, but yet without sin. And because of that, let us therefore come boldly. The word boldly doesn't mean brashly. It means open-mouthed. It means I can just come and pour my heart out. I can say anything and, and boldly say what I need to say. And speak boldly. Unto, watch this. And he does have a throne of judgment. But in these conditions, it is a throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is his heart. This is his character. Are you listening to me? And because this is who he is, if he can, listen, he identifies with you. He identifies for you. If he can do this for you, can you not do this for your child? And he did it yet without sin. And you as a broken sinner, can you, can you not do this for your father? You as a sinner, can you, can you not do this for your brother, for your sister, for your friend that has sinned against you? Surely you can. Psalm 103 and verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And notice the emphasis on mercy. Plenteous, plenteous in mercy. He has plenty of mercy. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. He's plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide. It means he will not always be come at you with the book, though you deserve, you're guilty. He will not always do that. Neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father, you see this, like as a father pitieth. It's the idea of mercy. He pitieth His children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. For He knoweth our frame, and He remembereth that we are dust. This is the heart of God that He has for me, that He has for you. And we are glad of it. We are glad of it and we ought to rejoice in it. 
Well, if the word godly is an abbreviated form of godlike, G-O-D-L-Y is, means godlike. If you are godly, this is the kind of heart you have. You're plenteous in mercy. You offer it to those that have offended you. Psalm 25 and verse 6 and 7. Remember, O Lord, thy, thy tender mercies, thy compassions, your pity. And notice it's not just your mercies, but your tender mercies. This is where the word bowels comes in. God, your, your affection. Lord, you feel this. This is not just a transaction. Okay, I'm merciful. I'll just kind of know you feel this. You care for me because I'm your son. And there's a tenderness. That's my daddy. That's my mama. That's my son. That's my daughter. That's my friend. There's a tenderness there. You say, well, preacher, I don't have that. Well, listen, he does and he has tender mercy. He can give that to you. Thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses. That's the Old Testament word for grace. It is a steadfast love that never changes. Are you listening to me? Listen. And I want you to notice these words are in the plural. Mercies. Loving kindnesses. Even in Philippians 2.1, he bowels and mercies. They're in the plural. He says, he appeals to God. He says, your tender mercy, your loving kindness is in your grace. Remember them, for they have ever been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake. Not for my sake, but for thy goodness sake. There is no, there is no relationship. There is no church. There is no marriage. There is no family that can exist apart from empathy and mercy. None. And if it does stay together, there's no quality because there's so much anger. Paul and I, a few weeks ago, celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary. And we were talking just the other night. The trust that we have with one another. God knows the times that that I have hurt her. But there is a confidence, there is a trust that we have with each other. But she's extended mercy toward me. I've there's been times I've extended mercy toward her. And had there been no mercy in our relationship, we, w- we couldn't stand each other. Well, we'll just stay together for the good of the church. We'll just stay together for the good of the kids. What kind of a relationship is that? George Washington Carver said, How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, Sympathetic with the striving and tolerant of the weak and strong. Because someday in your life you will have been all of these. The older you get, the more you need mercy. Mercies. Mercies. The word means to feel pity. God's heart and its character. Someone said, to put ourselves in others' places, we must picture ourselves in their places. This is how you cultivate compassion. You put yourself in their place. We see the need rather than the offense. Even if they were 80% wrong, on the 20% we put ourselves in the 20%. And the the empathy cultivates compassion. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad. As sheep having no shepherd, he was stirred. He was moved. Are you ever moved to compassion? This is the word pardon. Keep 
referring to it, but it's here in the Word of God. That's the word bowels. He, it means he felt this. He felt this. I came across such a powerful illustration when I read this the other day. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 12. Now when Jesus came nigh to the gate of the city, there was a dead man carried out. And notice this, the only son. The only son of his mother. You see that? The only son. And she was a widow. Do you see this? Look at the words. She lost her husband. She lost her only son. And much people of the city was with her. She, she, she had no one now. Now I want to stop here. I want you to, this really happened. Think about how she felt. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said unto her, weep not. I think we read the Bible sometimes say, well, the Lord came in very form and said, weep not. I think he wept. At a very minimum, there was a tenderness. He felt this. Are you, are you getting this this morning? He felt this. Listen, we, we are so hardened with people in general that is transferred into our families. I, uh, I was, most of my day yesterday was involved ministering at a funeral. And I was playing the piano and as I was tucked away, I was watching Kevin Thomas and his funeral, not his funeral, his mother, excuse me, his mother and, and his sister and the family. And I'd known the family for many years. And thinking about how they felt. And then I remember talking to a young man that was in my children's church. Moments earlier in the room before I went over to play the piano. And, and I was sitting by myself during the service. And all this was kind of going through my mind. I was thinking just moments earlier in another room. And just about six weeks earlier, I was in that room with this young man. As he had buried his father. And on his arm in that room, he had his mother who had Alzheimer's. And in that same room six weeks earlier was his best friend that I talked to who was also in my children's church. And, and he died unexpectedly two weeks later. And as I put my hands on his shoulders and he, he pulled money out because I, I played the piano at his funeral and at the funeral for his father. And he looked at me with tears and I, he said, I didn't give you any money at the funeral. I said, John, put that money up. I don't want to eat your money. Put your money up. I said, I, I love you. I've been thinking about you. He's lost his best friend. He lost his daddy. His mom has Alzheimer's. I saw a childhood friend who, who lost his son. I think he was 35, 36 years old in a car accident back in February a year ago. I saw another friend whose, whose brother and his parents and his mom and dad told me, I said, what happened to your son? I came to his funeral in the same room a year and a half ago. He said, Rick, he said he came home. And he was in my children's church at the same church. He said he came home and he said, my stomach is hurting. And they found out that he had cancer and five months later. We were here in the funeral home. And I remember talking to his brother and I was talking to his, his mom and his dad. And I, I just went around talking to these, these people. And my former pastor who had lost his wife just weeks earlier and I played the piano at her funeral. And I was sitting against the wall back there. And I just felt as if, not in a bad way, but just, just my, these bowels, can I put it that way? 
was just assimilating this hurt of these, my friends. And I had to turn it to, to my Heavenly Father. There's nothing I can do. There's some things I can do. But I can't help them like the Lord can. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, the Bible says, verse 3, Remember them that are in bonds or in prison as bound with them. And them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. In other words, put yourself in their place. That's what suffering does for us. It knocks the idealism out of us. Be careful when people are suffering. Well, try this. We'll go to this doctor. We'll do this. It all sounds so simple. Someone said idealism increases in direct proportion to your distance from the problem. Suffering will will quiet you. It will tenderize you. John Stott said, our God, I'm sorry, he said, there are such things as Christian tears. And too few of us ever weep them. I want to show you, I'm going to skip a verse or two here, Andrew, if you'll forgive me. In James chapter 5 and verse 11, the Bible says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord, now notice this, is very, is very pitiful and of tender mercy. See that? Very pitiful. Very compassionate. William Cooper, who suffered a lot and wrote some hymns and some great poems, he said, man may dismiss compassion from his heart, but God never will. And here's my responsibility, and here's why I give you these things. It's my responsibility with God's enablement to treat people the way God treated me and treats me with great mercy, with great empathy. It it is very self-righteous to to receive the mercy of God and not give it to other people. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies. He puts both, see both qualities there? Affections, a tenderness of mercy. Not a transactional mercy. Well, I'll go ahead and write it off. I'll give you another chance. No, 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 no. Bowels of mercies. I love you. I believe in you. I want to help you. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? The word shut up means to shut a door. Some of you this morning, you, you've been stirred. Your bowels, your heart, your heart, your affections have been stirred about someone you love, about reaching out, about extending mercy, but you're shutting the door. You're shutting the door. Yeah, but it's too hard. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies, plural, of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Paul appealed to the mercies of God. To surrender to God because mercies motivate. Mercies, plural, not the mercy, mercies. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you would be a merciful man, a merciful woman, merciful young person. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort because that's where the comfort comes from. Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. And he's right. It's an ugly thing to have the answer and to be orthodox and be without compassion. I wrote this down. 
a Christian without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. You can apply that to your family, to, to our church. You can have the answers. But if there's no tenderness, if there's no affection, it's why people reject our witness sometimes. We really don't care about them. Unity is maintained when a spirit of empathy, a spirit of compassion and mercy is present. As I close this morning, is there a, a difficult or a broken relationship that needs mercy and compassion? I can't extend that for you. You must do that. Is there a stirring in your heart to do something? Don't shut the door. Don't shut the door. You say, preacher, it's hard. I know what it is. Ask God, the God that showed you mercy, to help you open it up. Say, God, help me open that door. I don't even want to open it. It really hurt. Help me keep it open so I can minister to this person. Maybe it's a, it's a loved one. It's really hard. And mercy will do that. You know what? You know how to become a Christian? You become a Christian when you ask God for mercy. That's it. It's not a prayer. It's not walking down an aisle. It's not getting baptized. It's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have nothing to give you but a broken life. I'm a train wreck. All I have is my sins. Would you have mercy on me and forgive me? And he will, because that's who he is. Would you bow your heads with me if you would today?